Hello, my name is Tilly Coggan. I will be your presenter and this is going to be one jam-packed episode of Alliance with Science. In this episode of Alliance with Science, I will be talking about how I use science in my everyday life, why science is important by the time you finish year 10, and lastly, we have a very special guest joining us on the show today. Carmen Hickey will be having a chat with us today about the science behind photography. First of all, Year 10 is the last year in your entire life where it is 100% compulsory to learn science in a lab or classroom, meaning that a basic understanding of science is essential because you don't ever learn science from a curriculum again. Secondly, at the age of 16, your brain is still open to learning and open to new ideas. After that, it starts to close, so it is crucial to learn this information by Year 10 because you have to understand what you're being taught to be scientifically literate. Lastly, you need science in every job of any kind, politicians using psychology, plumbers using curves and using the right material for pipes, a golfer figuring out his trajectory by physics. You don't have to learn science after year 10, but you will still use it in your future career. I use science all the time in my life and to cut it down to three examples was a tough job. So when I need to think about something, I usually take a walk around a random paddock. As I was walking along, kicking over thistles and pegging paddy melons at trees, I see in the distance, the bull. I've been terrified of bulls ever since I was a little kid, so I ran and ran and ran until I was out of that paddock. We learnt why this happens in Year 9 Science in the topic of body systems. And this is an example of a fight or flight response where my heart was racing and adrenaline was pumping. Adrenaline being the hormone that is made in your adrenal glands that sit on top of your kidney. The adrenaline rushed through my bloodstream and got my body ready for emergency action. When I finally ran all the way home, my nan was there to visit for afternoon tea as a mini celebration that she got her first COVID-19 vaccine. I told her that I was taught all about vaccines in the year 9 topic of body systems when we learned about pathogens, antigens and vaccines. I said that the vaccine was a small dose of corona so that her body could take make antibodies out of it but wouldn't be enough to affect her. I told her the pathogen was a disease cell and a baddie and in your body you have these things called B cells. The B cells were like the guards of the body. I said that the B cells tell more B cells to make antibodies that destroy and break down the body, aka the pathogen. I told her, when the pathogen is defeated, the B cells remember that the bad guy forever. And if it tries to come back, it already has a specialised army to take it down. When we had finished our tea, it was quite late in the evening and I walked her out to her car and noticed a gorgeous scarlet sunset. It was so fascinating and I knew why the sky looked red because of the scattering of light in the waves topic in E9. 
All of the colours in visible light have different wavelengths. Red has the longest wavelength and blue has the shortest wavelength. When sunlight shines through the oxygen, nitrogen and carbon dioxide particles in the atmosphere, because red has the longest wavelength, it passes straight through these particles, whereas blue has a shorter wavelength and bounces off the particles and doesn't enter into our atmosphere. This process keeps the blue trapped around the particles and this is why the sky looks so red. interviewee today is Carmen Hickey. She has been a photographer for over 15 years, winning multiple awards state and nationwide. Hello Carmen and welcome to Alliance with Science. First of all, how do you know what you know about science? Thanks Tilly. Well, I went to school at Sacred Heart Cootamundra and I had some amazing science teachers. And did you have any university degrees for science, for photography? Yes, I studied at Charles Sturt University and did my Bachelor of Fine Arts. What did that involve in the course? That involved studying part-time because I had a baby and it involved me going to university two times a week and completing um, study at home. So this took, yeah, around four years. So it was a Bachelor of Fine Arts, you said? Bachelor of Fine Arts um, with a major in photography. Right. In the industry of photography, how does the quality of the photo of the camera affect the photo captured in the end? How do, repeat that. How does the how does the quality of the camera affect the photo captured at the end? Um. No, the camera quality doesn't. Um, it, it helps. It attributes, but it's not the key factor. The key factor comes from knowing the art and knowing exposure and contrast, um, how to light a scene, um, how to compose, how to direct. Um, so I can take a similar photo on a $50 cheap throwaway camera versus a $10,000 camera. And will it be the same photo? It'll be the same photo compositionally, um, lighting, that's all the same. In regards to the quality in uh, megapixels, uh, no. Um, the cheap camera would definitely uh, give an inferior um, quality. However, compositionally, no, they would be the same. Um, what are megapixels? Megapixels are the amount of pixels made up in one square inch of a photo. So there is a thousand megapixels per inch of a photo. So when you're talking 20 megs, that's 20,000. Right. And what do you mean when you say exposure and contrast and how to set the lighting and whatnot? Exposure is the measure of light. So how much light passes through um, the aperture of the camera um, determines how light and bright or how dark an image can be. Um, exposure yeah, is the reading of light and, and how that is portrayed in through the image. Right, and, and what about um, contrast? What does that mean? Contrast is the depth of, um, of how can I explain it, the saturation of an image. So Saturation? Saturation of an image. Is. The saturation of, of an image is the depth of the colour, and the depth of the colour is determined by the saturation. So 
if you want an image that's overexposed, it's going to have low contrast because everything is lit really well um, and somewhat overexposed. But when you've got optimal exposure, so you're playing with light, uh, you're only you're telling the camera how much light you want to put into an image, um, and you're measuring that through the aperture um, and through light meters, um, which will give you the falls back and gives you the contrast. Um, but also gives you what's called the Kelvin, which is the temperature of light. Right, so the Kelvin temperature of light. And so why do you always shoot around the evening and not in the middle of the day if the shoot is outside? It comes down to um, the direction of the sun. So when you're shooting at midday, your sun is basically uh, right above you at the I guess the 12 o'clock mark so shooting so the direction of the sun uh, then you have full light under the eye and when being a portrait photographer uh, no one wants shadows under the eyes it makes you look old um, it's not a flattering light so we always try and aim for either an early morning shoot or late afternoon therefore the sunlight or the direction of the light doesn't necessarily have to be sun is coming from a lower point um, which either backlights the subject, um, thus giving them a more flattering light. And a flattering light, so it doesn't make them look old. Why? So how does taking the photograph actually work, like the whole process? Um, basically with, um, with digital, um, an image is made up of zeros and ones, and you're basically putting a formula into the camera camera of the constitution or the breakup of zeros and ones to get that image. Back when I first studied the art of photography I did learn in a dark room so I played with chemicals. Um, what chemicals? Um, there is all sorts of chemicals. There's the developer, um, you have to wash the film. It then passed through different stages of the chemical life which then brought out the image which then you had to um, burn onto an enlarger which is then allowing light to pass onto the chemical of the photo which exposed in different parts. Um, every photo taken in, in a dark room took many many hours to develop. Um, an image would then have to be washed in a certain chemical. What was the chemical? From memory I can't remember it. It was called developer. Um, there was acetone um, and with the enlarger that was allowing light to pass through certain elements of the chemical, um, the image then was hung and drawn, dried, um, all being in a dark room with infrared lighting. Um, what does the infrared do? The infrared doesn't affect the uh, chemical, so therefore you could work, you could still work in light um, but as soon as light was introduced natural light of a Kelvin of over 5600 the Kelvin would have would affect um, the image on that paper so that's why it's called a dark room it's literally a room that's very dark you do adjust to it because everything is red um, but like I said the red doesn't interfere with the pigment through the chemical onto that paper but a regular white light does correct and is it to do with like um the wavelength of the red? Yes, and then the chemical doesn't uh, recognise that light. So when you walk into a dark room 
it's generally a turntable door so you walk in spin the door so there is never any natural light in a dark room ever ever right and when you even take a film out of an old camera um that has to be done in a dark room um you've got to wash the film in a chemical um then develop it with the enlarger and that's all done in a dark room and when can you eventually take it out of the dark room? Uh, once the chemical has completely finished processing and that can take anywhere from five minutes up to an hour depending on the intricacies of the image. Um, if you have an image with just one tone um, of black and white um, it happens quite quickly. If it's an in-depth photo where there's a lot of shade of black and white um, monochromes, greys, then yes that can take up to hours to develop. So back in the olden days you never see a photographer, um, and in my case a wedding photographer, taking rolls and rolls of film because it was all a process and everything cost a lot of money back then. So now digital is so much more quick um, in processing and if you don't like the image you just delete it because all it is is digital data what we refer to in the industry as metadata which is made up of zeros and ones right and the so you can could you get nowadays could you get a photo just as good out of a dark room than you can in a digital camera i believe a better quality photo comes out of a dark room you have more control um, how you want something lit um, without using uh, things like Photoshop. Um, I don't believe in Photoshop and I very rarely use it. I believe Photoshop is taking away the art um, and I guess that the chemical used in a photo to compose the highlights and lowlights in an image, I don't want a computer doing that for me. So you like to do it all yourself. Back to the digital cameras how does the different lenses affect the end product um, it all comes down to um, for instance when I'm doing a wedding I'll have three bodies on my harness <clears throat> with three different lenses so the body does the same job every lens is different as there's a focal length um, how many blades of glass are in that lens. What do you mean by focal length, just quickly? So the focal length is um, how either you can zoom into an, an image or if you, if you look through a lens, some things are brought closer and some, some are more further away. So for me, I use what's called a prime lens. So therefore what I see through the prime lens is what my eye sees. If I wanna move closer or further away from subject, it's not a matter of zooming. It's a matter of me physically having, physically having to walk closer to the subject or move further away. It's a lot more work, but by not having multiple bits of glass in that lens, it's a more crisper image, cleaner, um, the the uh, oh, like the the lens itself isn't um, it, it hasn't lost calibration through say misuse of the lens if you've dropped it so the glass is all aligned whereas if a, if a glass is say a 24 to 70 focal length there's room for not room for error but room for those compositions of the glass to be fractured um, giving a the quality will still be fine but it's it's not as definite as a prime lens okay and with 
what do you mean by a prime lens? So the prime lens, there's it's minimal piece or blades of glass that are built into the lens that the light has to pass through. So the less layers of glass, the crisper the image. The aperture is also determined on every different type of lens. So the aperture is the measure of light passing through um, the hole in the lens um, and that determines what's called the bokeh effect, so how crisp um, an image is. A landscape photographer, for instance, would have everything sharp, um, so therefore would have a low aperture, which is a high number. So we talk about f-stops in camera, so a landscape photographer will shoot on a low aperture, which is a high number of, say, f-22 and above. I'm a portrait photographer, therefore I want my subject to be crisp and sharp, especially the eye. Um, but then everything else I just want to fall away. So I generally shoot with an aperture, a high aperture, of around 2.8, which is a low number. So why do some photographs look better with some filters than others? Um, different filters are used across the glass. Um, if you have a long exposure in a photo um, and say you're trying to get um, a waterfall and you want that nice misty as if the, the waterfall looks like a piece of silk, um, you need to have a long exposure. But by, by, by having a long exposure, you need to have a low aperture, which is a wide number. And if you're shooting at the middle of the day where it's pretty bright, if you leave that shutter open for say 20 seconds, your image is just going to be white. By introducing a filter or a color filter, a graded filter, um, a polarized filter, by putting that in front of the glass, it takes away that element of exposure. So therefore in the middle of the day, you're allowed, or you can set your camera that it can be, the shutter can be open for a minute. So what does the shutter do quickly? So in talking in terms of um, digital SLR, which is what I use, um, there's mirrors. So a mirror will open, which allows the light through the aperture of the camera, so the whole of the camera. The mirrors will open and then contract. So you're, the aperture and the exposure, you're telling the camera how long you want those mirrors exposed to the light for. Um, and that's where you hear the click click of a camera. That's the, the mirrors or the shutters opening to allow the light in. So other than that, when you're clicking the camera, it just stays shut? That's correct. Um, so when you're taking a photo, the click, and sometimes it's, it's that quick, you, you only hear one click, but in actual fact, it's two mirrors opening and then closing. So when you see someone doing a long exposure, you will hear a click, yep. click. So that means until you hear those two clicks, that photo is being taken the whole time. So therefore the, the mirrors are allowing light in that whole time. So say you had a five second exposure or something. So you have a camera set up and you walk and you, you turn the, the, the camera on, you press the button and it clicks. Then you walk along to the other side in the frame of the camera. What does that, so will you look, will you look blurred or will you just look normal? No depends on how you set your focal point generally and we're just going to pause for a moment 
Thank you very much, Carmen. It has been great having you on the show. It has been one very interesting episode of Alliance with Science. We have covered why it's important to be scientifically literate, some of my personal experience with science, and we have had a very interesting rundown on the science behind the camera.